Welcome back everyone to Palm Peeps. We're back with another great case to work through this week. Yeah, welcome back team. Today's case will be a bit different um, than what we've done previously. So instead of introducing any guest experts we may or may not have joining us today up front, we'll instead consult them as the case evolves. Hopefully the change of pace will help prevent any anchoring or give away the case. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one, and I'm hoping the different structure will help keep open the differentials that we often close uh, pretty early, and we get to think sort of explicitly about diagnosis bias, which is great. I'm also excited today that we're joined by one of our associate editors here at Palm Peaks. Luke Hedrick is an internal medicine resident at BIDMC. He's a rising star pulmonologist and intensive care doctor. Uh, he's interviewing now, and you may remember him from an episode on weakness and hypokalemia we did earlier in the year. Welcome back on the show, Luke. Thanks, guys. I'm really excited to be back on and to bring you all another case. Awesome. Us too. So as always, this case is not meant to be used for medical advice. Our opinions are our own. They don't reflect our employers. And the case is HIPAA compliant with some details that may have been changed to protect the identity of our patient. So let's dive in. Luke, can you tell us about this patient we have today? We have a 60-year-old woman with a past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, CKD stage 4, COPD, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. She has chronic pain requiring methadone and a complicated endocrine history notable for hyperparathyroidism that has is status post parathyroidectomy that was itself complicated by hypothyroidism now on hormone replacement. She's also had a recent admission for non-convulsive status epilepticus. And she's brought to an outside hospital by EMS with encephalopathy and shaking. Per her husband, she was fatigued the night before and went to bed a bit early, but was otherwise in her usual state of health. When he woke up in the morning, he found her uptunded and nonverbal with diffuse body shaking, so he called 911. In the last few days, he hadn't noticed any fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. When EMS gets her to the other hospital, her GCS was 5, so she was intubated for airway protection and started on fentanyl and midazolam infusions. Details of labs and imaging are scarce. Unfortunately, paperwork and discs didn't make it to us. But we know that she had a CT head that was normal, a chest x-ray with a report of pulmonary edema, and labs with a creatinine of 2.4, a bicarb of 14, and a pH from a VBG of 7.1 with a PCO2 of 38. Besides the RSI meds and sedation, she was given atropine for bradycardia, Keppra, lorazepam, and ceftriaxone before being transferred to us. Dave, there's a lot going on with her, and she's coming in a bit hot. If you were seeing her in the ED, what would you think so far? Yeah, certainly she does have a lot going on. And I think this is a great example of uh, what happens in critical care, internal medicine, ED medicine, where there's going to be a huge differential for this patient. You know, I, I don't have an idea of what's causing everything, but my first thought is just about stabilizing her. You know, she's been intubated. She got atropine for bradycardia, so probably had an unstable bradyarrhythmia. VBG pH is 7.1, which is you know pretty concerning in the acidosis. So my first steps are really going to be about stabilization and correction of the uh, acute abnormalities. And then I can go into my differential and start figuring out exactly what's driving it all. So for someone like this, I want to go down to the bedside right away. I want to lay hands on them. The exam is so important. I'm looking at vital signs. Are they still bradycardic? Is she hypotensive? If she is hypotensive, is she warm? Is she cold on exam? Does she look like she's got fluid up, fluid down, uvolemic? Looking for signs of something that could be cueing me off to specific etiologies. 
skin tone, signs of a toxidrome, signs that she could have cyanosis, things like that. And as part of that nowadays, that should include a bedside echocardiogram, bedside pocus. I just think that that is like the uh, modern physical exam for an acutely ill patient that you've, uh, that's maybe in shock or maybe renal failure uh, and needing intubation. Uh, in addition, you know, I just want to talk briefly about the fact that she was intubated for her altered mental status. This is a, you know, a, a thing that has sort of evolved over time. It used to be this phrase of uh, GCS-8 intubate, basically being like, if a patient can't protect their airway, we got to put a, a tube in. I think we've gotten a little bit more liberal than that. You know, I think if a patient is altered, but as signs they're protecting their airway, they're oxygenating, they're ventilating, uh, then you may let them uh, linger without the breathing tube with close monitoring, of course. But in a patient like this, who's rapidly getting worse and we're not sure what's going on, I think it's always the right move to just take control of the airway so we can do all the diagnostics, all the therapeutics we need to uh, and fix everything. So my first thing for this patient, check the vital signs, see what I need to correct, uh, see if she's going to need more pressors. If she does, probably going to use something to speed up the heart rate, levofed or a dopamine given the bradycardia. Want to try to correct the acidosis. Not We can talk a whole episode about bicarb, not a huge fan, but I would definitely breathe down on the vent. And if she really needed a little one amp of bicarb to get her through the acute phase, I may do that. And then I'm going to go right into an exam and a broad set of labs to try to figure out what's going on. So we like to get more information once we have control over hemodynamics and her uh, respiratory rate. Yeah. So just like you said, first things being first, her initial vitals in the ED, her temperature was 89.6. Her heart rate was 37. Her BP was 118 over 58, but on a norepinephrine drip. Her respirate was 15 and her uh, pulse ox was about 100%, though unclear exactly what the vent settings were when she first arrived. On exam, she was diffusely tremulous or shaking. She had decreased breath sounds bilaterally. Her abdomen was soft, non-tender, non-distended. She had 2-plus edema bilaterally in her legs up to the just above the knees. And on her neuro exam, she had some right chemosis. Her pupils were sluggishly reactive and she was withdrawing weekly to noxious stimuli in all four extremities. Christina, how does this help you? Thanks so much, Lou. I had to do a double here. Um, you know, at first when you said 89.6, I was like, oh, that's normal. But um, no, it's reverse. It's not 98.6, it's 89.6. So severe um, hypothermia. But with this patient with a history of status epilepticus and initially concerned for ongoing shaking, I'm still worried that she could still be having the clinical seizures some things to try to help with management up front um, would be to try to control that. So what I'm thinking with that is, you know, giving her some Ativan, loading with Keppra, increasing her midazolam drip, and even consider adding propofol if needed. I think getting an EEG as soon as possible would certainly be in the realm of our diagnostic uh, workup and evaluation with her and getting our neurology colleagues on board for um, evaluation and management was also going to be really helpful. Again, with her shock, as you mentioned, she's on a vasopressor with norepinephrine and the hypothermia with her temperature being 89.6, worried still about underlying um, sepsis physiology. So I definitely want to have her on broad spectrum antibiotics. She did have some pulmonary edema on her chest x-ray and some evidence of overload on her exam, as you mentioned, um, in her extremities. So I may hold off on um, aggressive IV fluid resuscitation right now. Overall, though, I think it's important to note that I'd still look for signs about if she was volume responsive or not with techniques like we've talked about evaluating the IVC with ultrasound or doing a passive leg raise, because it will still be important to know those 
information and details for future hemodynamic monitoring. Luke, you mentioned bradycardia in her as well, and that's certainly concerning, and we'll definitely have to look at her EKG to see if it is sinus or not. In the setting of everything else going on, I don't think that the bradycardia is the only thing driving her shock at this um, current point, but I want to know, you know, is this heart block and something else that we need to be taking a different route that may require a different intervention, or is this just sinus? And finally, in someone I'm worried about sepsis and status, we need to be thinking about meningitis early as well. So I'd consider doing an LP with potentially starting CNS antibiotics once we get more information on whether or not she's coagulopathic or not, or whether or not an LP would be doing safe at this point. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. And, and, you know, in addition, Luke, you told us on the transfer that some of her labs were pretty abnormal and she had an abnormal x-ray. I would definitely just sort of repeat all of those. Those can change rapidly in a short period of time with someone who's this sick. So I'd like to get a sort of sense what's going on. And then, you know, anybody who's coming in from an outside, I always just confirm our access, confirm our ET tubes in the right place. Uh, I think we can talk separately about ET tubes and how we know and making sure we're in the airway, but, you know, at least with a chest x-ray or a CO2 monitor, just to make sure that everything is secure and we have full control of the situation. So do we have some labs, EKG, some imaging on this patient so we can start figuring out what's going on? Yeah, so her labs are cooking right now, but we did grab an EKG that showed sinus bradycardia with some prominent T waves, but no ST elevations or depressions uh, and no evidence of heart block. Her chest x-ray confirmed ET tube placement and demonstrated right greater than left layering pleural effusions with some associated atelectasis and cardiomegaly. Thanks so much, Luke, for adding that information. And um, I think right now I'm feeling better about avoiding more fluid. Your x-ray is concerning for another sign of overload with the bilateral effusions. At some point, we'll definitely want to get a POGIS to evaluate her heart function, but worried about volume overload in her. So we're also able, while the labs are still on their way, we're able to get a little bit of collateral from her husband. Um, Her past medical history is complicated, but it does include diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, the endocrine history that we talked about earlier. She's had a thyroidectomy that was complicated by hypothyroidism, COPD, HEFPEF, and CKD4 with a baseline creatinine around two. Her chronic pain is from osteoarthritis, which is requiring methadone. And she has a history of provoked PEs and several ischemic strokes in the past. Her family history is notable for a brother with coronary disease and peripheral vascular disease, a father with some melanoma and diabetes, and then a mother who also had thyroid disease of some kind, hypertension, and then breast cancer that's in remission right now. In terms of a social history, she lives at home with her husband and uses a walker to get around. She's had several falls in the last few months, most recently about three to four weeks prior to admission. She's a former smoker with a 45-pack year history. She quit a little over a decade ago. She doesn't drink and she doesn't use any recreational drugs. For her home meds, she's on carvedilol, levetiracetam, lamotrigine, levothyroxine, furosemide, glargine, losartan, albuterol, and just a whole bunch of vitamins. Does this help much with your differential? Yeah, Luke, I think this is like a great example of how helpful getting history is in these patients. You know, in the ICU, we often can't get a great one or we're getting collateral from the family. But even a med list like this sort of changes everything. You know, we're still worried about infection, like Monty said, still worried about CNS process. And I would cover with meningitis, you know, medications up front. But now we see there's some anti-epileptics on her med list. Maybe she's had seizures in the past. Maybe this isn't a new uh, CNS process. 
She also is on some thyroid replacement. Uh, she's had an endocrine history in the past. Could this be an endocrinopathy that's going on? And she has, you know, heart failure, chronic kidney disease. These are common things that can cause people to go into shock, have bradycardia uh, complicating it. So is that causing something as well? You know, hypothermia is still really unusual. And so I still have, you know, infection, toxidrome, endocrinopathy is high up on my differential, but this helps me narrow about the things that I'm thinking about. And I'm still waiting on those labs. <laughs> so uh, just in time, they've come back now um, for her CVC. Her hemoglobin is 6.1. The baseline is around nine, it looks like for her. Her platelets are 10 and she has a normal white count at 6.6. For her chemistries, there's a handful of abnormalities here. Her sodium is 148. Uh, her creatinine is uh, 2.6 with a BUN of 66. Her potassium is 7.9. Her bicarb on uh, her BMP is 9 with a chloride of 123. And she's a little hyperglycemic at 197. For her liver chemistries, her ALT is a little elevated at 48. Um, her T-bili is 4. And her ALPHOS is 125. A VBG was done, which showed a pH of 6.95 with a PCO2 of 61 and a lactate of 4.8. We got an S-tox and a U-tox. They were both negative, and some thyroid studies were sent as well. Her TSH was 1.7, and her free T4 was 1. And then, of course, like everybody getting admitted nowadays, she had a COVID test, which was negative. There's obviously a lot of abnormal results here. What I feel like when I was looking at these in the medical record, like her entire page of lab results was red or marked abnormal. Christina, is there anything in particular that jumps out at you? Uh, yeah, Luke, I think like everything is jumping out. These are the results where there's like multiple exp exclamation points um, jumping out at you. Um, I, I know this can kind of be hard to start piecing apart, but in cases like this, which are not uncommon for someone coming to the ICU, I try to see if I can group the abnormal results by patterns. That makes sense to me and makes sense to uh, members of the team. So to start with this patient on the things that are really the most acute, the first two things that I am thinking of are the pH of 6.95, as well as the potassium loop that you mentioned of 7.9, which is incredibly high. There are clearly signs of acute renal failure with the BUN of 66 and her creatinine of 2.6, along with the hyperkalemia, as I mentioned. Although we need to take into account that this is likely an acute on chronic kidney injury given her baseline CKD. Her acid base looks to have two primary processes, uh, first a respiratory acidosis, as well as an anion gap metabolic acidosis in the setting of lactic acidosis in her acute kidney injury. Her hyperkalemia may be worsened too by cellular shifts given her acidosis. So the first things that I would do right away um, is to try to control these two things would be to hyperventilator to reduce uh, her CO2 and improve the pH. The second thing I would want to do is to go ahead and give calcium gluconate given her hyperkalemia, as well as dextrose and insulin. And in this extreme case, if I thought I could blow off the CO2 uh, fairly well, I would go ahead and give an amplified carb. I think that would be reasonable, but you know, some people might have different systematic practices with bicarb. Birth, what are you thinking? I would do it too. I think, you know, pH like that, okay, that's high. I think that it's something that we could probably handle. Um, and I totally agree. Deal with those acute things up front and lump them that way. And then start diving into the rest of the results that you have, again, as you stabilize. So uh, low-hanging fruit, the tox was negative. You know, that doesn't capture everything, but it's reassuring. Uh, TSH and free T4 reassuring that this isn't a thyroid process that could be driving everything. They're, they're really good mimickers of systemic diseases. So I'm happy about that. 
And then turning to her CB or her uh, blood cell count and her LFTs, you know, I'm going to lump these together for her. She has anemia down pretty significantly from her baseline. She also has severe thrombocytopenia. I think you said her platelets were 10 and she has an elevated uh, T belly. So these are certainly things that we can think about happening in acute illness. We have septic patients who come in with these findings, although that thrombocytopenia is really low. So I, you know, when I see platelets that low, they definitely jump out to me. And I start to worry a little bit uh, about a hemolytic anemic process, given that we have these two cell lines that are down and an elevated billy. I definitely want to fractionate it and send some other hemolysis labs, but it's on my list. And part of the reason it's on my list is that when I was in residency or in fellowship, I just like had certain things that really scared me and uh, a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. It was totally one of them. It's just one of those things that I never wanted to miss. I was always scared it was going to come into ICU and I was going to think it was just sepsis. And so I have a high uh, suspicion for that. So I'd right away send like sort of a full set of coags, a smear, and maybe even a Coombs just to make myself feel better in case this is the process that's driving it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot going on here. And I feel like whenever patients are complicated like this, I find it helpful to pause and be explicit about my problem representation because I think it helps me structure my thinking and the next steps I'm taking. Christina, would you be able to help share how you're putting her together in your mind? Absolutely, Luke. And I just want to echo, I agree with Dave. I feel like the microangiopathic anemias did scare me. And as an intern, I remember someone saying, you don't want to miss a schistocyte overnight. Um, but I think to your point, Luke, it is. We've gone over a lot of information so far. So I think going on, taking a diagnostic pause to frame a problem representation at this time is always helpful. So overall, I would say my problem representation is that we have a woman in her 60s with multiple comorbidities who's presenting with convulsive activity concerning for status epilepticus, found to have hypothermia, bradycardia, hypervolemia, and shock, whose labs reveal renal failure with severe acidosis and hyperkalemia, elevated lactate, and labs concerning for hemolysis. Yeah, and I'm, I, Luke, I think that was a great suggestion. I'm glad we did that because it started triggering some recognition of some patterns that we, we should think about in the ICU. So we have labs potentially concerning for hemolysis. We have an AKI and neuro changes. Now I'm really worried about TTP or a hemolytic anemic process that we don't want to miss. So these are things that scared me. Uh, Christina, I'm glad they scared you too. I feel better about it. And I would consult him and I, I, I'm guilty of consulting hematology in the middle of the night when I was worried about this type of thing. So on that note, we'd really want to bring in a consultant to help us out. And I'm thrilled to introduce uh, Rocky Nyack. Rocky is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital and the associate director of the Heme Onc Fellowship Program. She has a master's in health sciences from Johns Hopkins Bluebird School of Public Health, in addition to her MD. She has an expertise in an array of non-malignant hematology disorders and focuses specifically on sickle cell in her research. And she's also an outstanding and dedicated educator. She serves as the chair of the American Society of Hematology, Hematology-Focused Training Program Consortium, and they work to develop innovative training pathways for non-malignant hemat. So welcome to Poem Peeps, Rocky. It's a real pleasure to have you and, and please help us out with this. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I've always wanted to be on a podcast, so this invitation is truly a heme dream come true. 
That's amazing, Rocky. Thank you so much. And I know TTP feels like one of those acronyms we learn in medical school, but quickly become somewhat blurry, other than knowing it can be a serious problem and that, you know, a true heme dream team um, needs to be consulted. But Rocky, can you refresh us on what TTP actually is and what the typical patient looks like um, when we see this presentation? Yes, of course, I would love to. So TTP stands for thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura which is basically just a fancy term for a clotting disorder that's associated with low platelets. So essentially, TTP falls under the broad umbrella term that's known as thrombotic microangiopathy, or TMAs. It's caused by a severely reduced activity of an enzyme known as ADAMTS13, which is the protease that cleaves von Willebrand factor. And this can be due either to an autoantibody against ADAMTS13 or rarely it can be due to a hereditary deficiency of the enzyme. Now, if you were to remember all the way back to medical school, von Willebrand factor is produced by the endothelium, and it's first produced as an ultra-large multimer that's normally cleaved by ADAMTS13. So when ADAMTS13 levels are low, these ultra-large von Willebrand multimers can accumulate on the endothelial surface. And because ultra-large multimers are very, very sticky, platelets attach and accumulate. And of course, this process then ultimately leads to small vessel platelet-rich microthrombi that cause a consumptive thrombocytopenia, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, or MAHA, and of course, organ damage, most commonly in the kidney and brain. Now, a typical TTP patient is going to look like this. They tend to be young with a median age of 40. They most commonly are otherwise healthy, and they're most commonly female. And then of course, in terms of other demographics, it occurs more commonly in black patients and 24% of them have a BMI greater than 40. But of course, as with everything in medicine, not every case is gonna fit into that description. Yeah, thanks so much for going through that. It's super helpful to know you know, the process that's driving it, but also the typical patient. And like you said, the patients don't always read the textbook. So I feel like I often want to make sure it's not this. You know, though All those features you mentioned, we can see in other critical illnesses, but I really have a high index of suspicion. So it sounds like it's a really important next step for our patient to figure out how suspicious we are for hemolysis, for this microangiopathic hemolytic anemic process, this MAHA process. Uh, and these, since these are common findings in the ICU, I think it'd be sometimes hard to know what we're looking for in MAHA versus other conditions. So when you want to know the answer to that, or if you're getting that phone call from a scared intern late at night, what do you look for to diagnose MAHA? Like what raises your suspicion for TTP or other hemolytic processes versus just critical illness? Yeah. So in terms of diagnosis of MAHA, the smear really is the key. And I would, of course, be the world's worst hematologist if I didn't recommend a smear first. So in MAHA, you would expect to see schistocytes or fragmented cells, since the hemolysis is really caused by a physical shearing of those red blood cells. But of course, there's also tons of other laboratory tests that can help corroborate a suspicion for hemolysis. So the first thing that I look for is really an elevated reticulocyte count. Since the bone marrow's drive for erythropoiesis tends to be really high in hemolytic states. Other things you can look for are low haptoglobin and a high LDH. They can also help support the diagnosis of hemolysis. And a lot of people will then also send um, an indirect bilirubin. But in my experience, I'll say that an elevated indirect bilirubin is the least sensitive measure of red cell breakdown. So we sent a haptoglobin, an LDH, and we did fractionate the bilirubin. We also got a peripheral smear for the heme to look at. 
And when he did, he saw schistocytes. Rocky, is that enough information to act on, or are there other things that you would want to consider or do first? Yeah, that's a really good question. So as I mentioned, TTP is one of many disorders under that broad category of thrombotic macroangiopathies, or TMAs. And all TMAs present with microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia. So just the presence of schistocytes alone can't confirm a diagnosis of TTP. We first need to rule out other causes of TMA, such as DIC or atypical HUS. So the plasmic score can actually help us do that. If you aren't familiar with the plasmic score, it's a simple tool available on MDCalc that you can use to pre predict whether a patient has TTP while you're awaiting the ADAMTS13 level. Now the ADAMTS13 level is really the only definitive test for TTP, but as you know, it may take some time to come back. So in the meantime, you can use this plasmic score to decide should you start treatment or not. The plasmic score incorporates several criteria and you get one point for each of them. So you get one point for a platelet less than 30,000, one point for evidence of hemolysis on labs, one point if you don't have cancer or if you don't have a history of prior solid organ or bone marrow transplant. Because as you remember, I said TTP patients tend to be otherwise healthy and not have other underlying issues. One point for an MCV less than 90 and one point for an INR less than 1.5 because an INR greater than 1.5 would be much more suggestive of DIC. You'll get one point also for a creatinine less than two. We use a cutoff score of five or greater to decide whether or not we should start TTP-directed therapy. Now, I will say as a hematologist, I don't always use the plasmic score, but that's really only because experience has helped me recognize the clinical and laboratory patterns that are more consistent with TTP compared with other types of TMAs. The plasmic score puts those patterns really into an easy to use tool. So other people can definitely use this. So in our case, the plasmic score is at least five if I'm calculating right. So we should definitely start to treat for TTP. I really love that the experienced clinician is often has a suspicion that correlates with these scores. And it's not just you saying that, like when they look at it, if they take a hematologist or they take a critical care and they compare it to Apache, that experience really matters so much. It's a, it's a fascinating part of medicine. We try so hard to make these scores and, and then often experience sort of caps a lot of it. Well, uh, suffice to say that I, I am one of those people who's going to have to rely on the plasmic score. <laughs> You know, an interesting thing that I came across while I was working on this case is that despite what we all got told in med school, fever, AKI, and neuro findings are not required for the diagnosis of TTP. In fact, just like you just told us, Rocky, you actually get a point in the plasma score for having a creatinine of less than two. Yeah, isn't that so interesting? Well, this is part of that pattern recognition that I was talking about. So TTP is most commonly associated with very severe thrombocytopenia or platelets less than 30, but correspondingly with relatively mild renal dysfunction. Whereas something like atypical HUS, which is one of the major differential diagnoses for TTP, is associated with mild to moderate thrombocytopenia, but more severe renal dysfunction. Yeah, Rocky, now that you sort of touched on that, I know that HUS, atypical HUS comes up in a lot of these patients uh, once we've seen schistocytes. Can you just talk a little bit about the distinction, how it plays into your diagnostic process and, and what we should know about that in the ICU? Yeah, of course. So both TTP and HUS are TMAs, so they can look very similar clinically. But pathophysiologically, the two disorders are pretty different. So TTP most commonly 
occurs um, due to an acquired autoantibody against Adam's TS13, like we talked about before. But atypical HUS is generally actually caused by a genetic mutation in complement regulatory genes. However, despite that, that still occurs in adults. And the reason is because the complement system is involved in innate immunity, but it also interacts closely with the coagulation system. And in patients with genetic defects in complement genes, you need a trigger in the body, such as infection, that causes excessive activation of that complement. And then that, in turn, leads to excessive activation of parts of the coagulation system. And that ultimately leads to the TMA, or the thrombocytopenia and microthrombi. Now, we talk, we're talking mostly about atypical HUS, but there is something, therefore, called typical HUS. And sometimes we just call that HUS. And that's very similar in terms of being a procoagulant process, but in that case, it's caused by shiga toxin producing E. coli. But again, just remember, the patterns of labs and clinical presentation often differs between TTP and typical or even atypical HUS. So we can often use that pattern to help differentiate between the two and then ultimately decide on the initial treatment. And Rocky, if it's not too burdensome, could you just tell us what the major differences are that we should look for so that we can distinguish the two? Sure, of course. So the differences are, as I mentioned, in TTP, we're going to have very severe thrombocytopenia without a lot of renal dysfunction. And in atypical HUS or even other types of HUS, you will have less severe thrombocytopenia, but a lot of renal dysfunction. The other things to really note in atypical HUS is that often it's associated with things that look like malignant hypertension or really high blood pressures. So that's another thing you can look for in, in HUS. Yeah, and it sounds like we don't have a confirmed diagnosis yet because we're still waiting on our Adams um, TS13 to come back. But as you said, Rocky, given um, the plasma score, just given um, clinical expertise, uh, we definitely have a high suspicion for TTP in this patient. So given this, let's talk a little bit about treatment. So I know that for management of these patients, we'll do total plasma exchange as well as steroids, but I know that there's um, definitely some nuances here. And Rocky, I'm hoping you can help us with some of these details. You're absolutely right, Christina. So in any patient who has suspected TTP, you should definitely start on steroids and plasma exchange right away. And that's because organ damage, especially in the kidneys and brain, can progress very fast if you wait. So the reason why we do plasma exchange is actually twofold, and I want you to remember this. First, it's because we're removing the autoantibody against the Adams TS13 by taking out the patient's own plasma and taking out those autoantibodies. And then the second thing that plasma exchange is doing is that we're actually giving Adams TS13 back to the patient by giving them fresh frozen plasma. So we will continue plasma exchange until the platelets normalize. And one tip though to remember, you wanna avoid platelet transfusion in TTP. And why is that? It's because the platelet adhesion to those ultra long von Willebrand factors is what's causing the problem in the first place. So you don't wanna add more fuel to the flame. So don't transfuse platelets when you're placing that line for plasma exchange. The reason for steroids though is quite intuitive. We give them to suppress the autoantibody production. So in general, adults, in, in adults, we use prednisone at one milligram per kilogram to start, and then we'll wean that over the next couple weeks to the first month. Once the Adams TS13 results and confirms TTP, we then decide to give rituximab as a long-term steroids-bearing agent to suppress that autoantibody production and then ultimately pre prevent relapse. We've now moved to giving this to all TTP patients, not just certain 
TTP patients or those only who have relapsed. We give them to give rituximab to everybody. It's so helpful. And actually you hit on the core of why this used to scare me in residency. I was always so worried I would get TTP, not recognize it and give platelets and just make things worse, which, you know, again, if it happens, I'm sure it's not the end of the world for people, but it's something we want to avoid. So thank you for that tip. And then for everybody, I, you know, anytime we're considering rituximab, just early on, I would send stuff like hepatitis B, TB testing, just looking for chronic or indolent infections that may influence this. Um, but it's really helpful to know that everybody gets that now because I did, uh, didn't realize that. I do remember, though, Raggy, a New England Journal article a few years back, uh, and there was actually uh, at Hopkins when I was there, uh, Grand Rounds about it, about a new medicine for this, caplicizumab. I think I'll see if I said that right. You'll let me know. <laughs> but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and where it fits into your treatment algorithm. Yeah, I'm so happy that you're asking about this. So the approval of caplicizumab has the promise to absolutely revolutionize the way that we care for TTP patients. So what caplicizumab is, and you pronounced it correctly, is a monoclonal antibody fragment that binds the von Willebrand factor and prevents its interaction with platelets. So essentially what it's doing is it's preventing that consumption of platelets and therefore protecting against the formation of microthrombi that ultimately leads to the organ damage in TTP. So right now, caplicizumab is always used in conjunction with plasma exchange. That may change in the future. But right now, since it's inhibiting platelet consumption, you can probably guess that it helps platelet count recover faster, it decreases that length of hospital stay, and it even has a potential for protecting against early organ damage and death in TTP. And that's huge. So caplicizumab in general, it's given as an IV dose. You start prior to plasma exchange, and then after starting plasma exchange, you continue the dose as subcutaneous daily for 30 days, even after the end of plasma exchange. And that's to prevent early recurrences. Now, many, of, many centers are now moving towards using caplicizumab in all patients diagnosed with TTP, but some centers are still reserving it only for severe cases. So those cases who have evidence of organ damage, such as neurologic symptoms, troponinemia, or refractory disease. But the main thing to know about caplicizumab is that it, it's inhibiting this platelet adhesion. So it can lead to a risk of bleeding. And it also doesn't actually suppress the underlying autoantibody production. So steroids and rituximab are still going to be needed for the continued immunosuppression. Thanks so much, Rocky. And I uh, was recently on service and we had someone with, with TTP, um, but unfortunately also had a left MCA stroke. So we couldn't use... Um, Caplicizumab, but definitely was was good for our team, the ICU team, to kind of review it as a potential adjunct, as you mentioned. You know, Rocky, you said rituximab is often given to try and prevent relapse in TTP. But I guess a two-part question for you, Rocky, how common is relapse with these patients? And the second question, is there a particular window of time when they're at higher risk of relapse? Yeah, that's a great question. So much like other autoimmune diseases, TTP really is a lifelong disease and it has a lifelong chance of relapse. That being said, the chance of relapse differs from how far away you are from the TTP episode. So in the first week to the first month, while that rituximab is still trying to kick in, there is definitely a risk of relapse or sometimes we'll call it early recurrence or exacerbation because that ADAMS TS13 autoantibody titer may still be really high. So we have to be very hypervigilant and follow up patients very vigilantly during this time. The risk of relapse then remains high for the first two years. 
During those first two years, we generally check Adam's TS13 levels every three months during that time. And then after that, the risk does of relapse does decrease. And so we continue to monitor Adam's TS13 levels annually, indefinitely. Well, I'm definitely feeling more confident. This was the best consultation I've ever had in the hospital. <laughs> I'm sure your notes always say all of that. <laughs> um, and we have our differential open because um, Adam's CS13 is still pending, but we saw schistocytes. We have a high plasmic score. We have an idea of what to do. So Luke, what happened with your patient? Yeah. So she was admitted to the MICU and had an HD or phoresis line placed. We temporized her hyperkalemia, she was started on steroids, and emergent plasma exchange was done. Once that finished, she was started on CRRT for her hyperkalemia and volume overload. Ultimately, the Adams TS13 came back at less than 10%, confirming the diagnosis of TTP. She gradually got better and was actually discharged to rehab about a week or so later. One thing that was really interesting to me and something that I learned while I was preparing for this episode was that because of that risk of relapse we were just talking about and how vague these symptoms can be, things that you might evaluate more routinely or kind of in a sequential manner in clinic, like GI upset or symptoms of anemia, require urgent attention with the CBC to make sure that your patient hasn't relapsed. And if that CBC shows a platelet count of less than 100,000, they should be referred to the ED for an urgent eval for hemolysis and potentially admission. Awesome, Luke. And this was a really great case that you brought, and I think a really good learning point um, from the case as well. And since we always end with a learning point, I think I'll go to mine next. And I think I really want to focus on some of the basics that Rocky mentioned uh, when you're thinking about hemolysis and labs to work up. So I think obviously we know if we don't get a smear, we're going to disappoint Rocky and we never want to do that. So we're always going to start with a smear. But one thing that I think um, I hadn't really realized or put together is looking for an elevated reticulocyte count since Rocky mentioned that could be elevated or high given the bone marrow is dry for erythropoiesis. The other two labs we're thinking about are low haptoglobin and as well as a high LDH. Firf, I'll go to you. What's your takeaway point for today? Oh man, I have a lot. Again, I can't just settle down to one. I, I really like the point you said that actually elevated indirect billy is a low sensitivity for hemolysis. I, I feel like we get like we get LFTs a lot on patients and we're like, yeah, there's no hemolysis. The T bill indirect T bill is not that high. I'm glad to know that that we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, the plasma score, which we'll put in an infographic and share with you all the severity of platelets and renal dysfunction as a distinguishing marker between TTP and atypical HUS. I love that point about the plasma exchange, uh, you know, removing antibodies, but also giving back Adam's TS13. I think that's so cool. And then importantly, just that, again, patients don't follow the, read the textbook. Like Luke pointed out, this patient had bad renal dysfunction, but they had probably some baseline CKD. And so you don't want to let that stop you from making the right diagnosis. So get a smear, check it out and see what's going on. Uh, Rocky, after my million learning points, anything additional to leave our learners with, our non-heme learners? Yeah, well, this case actually definitely highlights that you have to keep your mind wide open and your differentials very broad. This was a very sick patient with many comorbidities, and it would have been so easy to chalk her presentation up to something common like sepsis or just a progression of her underlying illness. So I really do commend the team for just continually revising and refining the differential to come up with that unifying diagnosis of TTP. And also, I just want to remind everyone in the audience that hematology really rules. <laughs> no arguments there, that's for sure. 
Well, thank you, Rocky, for coming on the show. Thank you, Luke, for preparing and bringing us this great case. And we're going to share an awesome infographic that Luke has prepared and that Rocky has looked over for us. So you can look forward to that coming. Uh, this was another great episode. Monty, as always, love to be on here with you. Make sure you tune in in two weeks and check us out next time. The case was written by Luke Hedrick. It was produced and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music is original music by Eric Rogers. We'll see you next time. <music>